this will be quite a change, I think, from our last series. We're going to step back to a time about 630 years before God revealed himself to us in Jesus, stepping back to the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah. And it might take you a while to find this little book, Zephaniah, in the Old Testament. It's only a few pages long. I think, I think it's just 53 verses or something like that all up. But now that you've found it, stick a bookmark there or, or remember the page number because we do hope to study and explore this little book over the next four weeks, Lord willing. And because it's set so far back in time, and because it can be hard to make sense of things when we just dive in somewhere and start reading in the Bible, I want to frame our journey through Zephaniah against four reference points, four perspectives that can help it make sense of things when we do open up a not-so-familiar part of Scripture. The first reference point that we need to put in place is, is to think about what this book meant at that time. to the people in the historical context it was originally written to. So Zephaniah was a real person, in a real place, in a real time, and God's word came through Zephaniah into that real context he was in. We have to consider what this meant to them then, to the people at that time in that place. And verse 1 gives us a first little insight into that original context. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah. That's a long genealogy. And most notably, Zephaniah's great-grandfather there might be King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, who was one of the few righteous kings of Judah. But we can't be sure if it's the same Hezekiah. What is sure from verse 1 there is that when the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, The king of Judah by that time was Josiah. And in Josiah, we have a name to pay attention to. Josiah became king when he was just eight years old. Can you you imagine being king at eight years old? And Josiah, more importantly, grew up to be a very righteous king in Judah. Josiah set about great spiritual reform. He destroyed all the altars and idols of false gods that had been built, and he started repairing the temple of the Lord, Yahweh, to to refocus the nation's worship back to God. While the temple was being repaired, someone found the book of the law of Moses. That is, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Can you even imagine Israel having lost and forgotten about those scriptures? Anyway, they were found when the temple was being repaired and they were brought to King Josiah and he read them and he realized that they were doomed because they had so broken faith with the Lord. And the law of Moses actually spelt out the consequences for breaking faith against the Lord. And you can read that part of the story if you want to later in, in 2 Kings uh, chapters 22 and 23 or, or 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It's also worth noting in this context we're looking at that, that this warning through Zephaniah comes to Judah about a hundred years after an equivalent uh, judgment was carried out on the northern tribes of Israel, which had been conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. Meanwhile, the southern tribes of, of Judah had also been idolatrous in that time, rejecting God and pursuing all kinds of other gods. 
which is no surprise, I suppose, if they had neglected the word of God in Scripture, having even lost it in the temple somewhere. The nation had reached an all-time low under King Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather. We'll come back to Manasseh later in the series, but suffice to say, to cut a long story short, things were very, very wrong in Judah by the time Josiah did take over the kingship. And the word of the Lord came to Judah once again at this time through this prophet Zephaniah. So that's the historical context of this book. And there's definitely a direct message for those people of Judah at that time. King Josiah's spiritual reforms were probably either triggered by Zephaniah's warning or maybe encouraged or confirmed by Zephaniah's warning if it came later, as he brought this warning from God to the people that they should turn to the Lord. And although that reform did come, as I say, under King Josiah, it was unfortunately very short-lived. And around 30 years later, the immediate warning of Zephaniah's prophecy against Judah was fulfilled. The Babylonians came and they conquered Judah and carried them off into exile. The second reference point we should be aware of, as much later readers of this book, is is to think about how the message of this book fits in with the whole story of God's salvation along the Bible timeline. There is a unified, overarching story to the Bible. It stretches from creation in the beginning to to new creation promised in the end. And and we need to factor in that whole story as well as we read a scripture. In broad strokes, after creation, sin entered the story. Sin entered the story and, and ruined humanity. But God began a movement to rescue us from our sin. And as part of that rescue, a final judgment is coming because no hint of sin can come into the the new creation that's coming in the end. So that's the bigger perspective of the whole Bible story that we also should factor into our reading as we look through Zephaniah. Zephaniah's message actually starts by flagging both of those two perspectives right together, side by side. The wider concept of the whole Bible story first in verses 2 and 3 And then in verses 4 and 6, the more specific warning to the people in Judah at that particular time. Verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I mean, that language there is talking about devastation for the whole earth, isn't it? And so all people at all times should immediately be very interested in this book. But then verses 4 to 6 zoom in on on the first perspective that I mentioned, the the them-then side of all this, the people in Zephaniah's actual context at that time. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place, etc., etc., says God. So we're immediately forced into thinking about Zephaniah's warning from two perspectives. This word of God was spoken into the crisis in Judah during King Josiah's reign in, in 630 BC, but, but it's obviously of much wider significance to the whole Bible story. 
If you peek ahead in your Bibles, uh, just one verse to verse 7 of next week's passage, uh, you will see that the warning is going to be about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is a common concept that God has revealed to us in Scripture, and it, it runs pretty thick through Zephaniah. Actually, this, this day of the Lord concept is, is more or less the key theme in Zephaniah. So if we get a, our heads around it today, it'll set us up for the, the journey through this book. The day of the Lord. Even, even the phrase, just that day, captures the concept in shorthand. And, and once you've seen it here in Zephaniah, you'll actually start seeing it all over the Bible. Colloquially, we, we refer to the wider angle on this day of the Lord idea as, as Judgment Day. Judgment Day. And everyone knows that a Judgment Day has to happen. We can hope that it never comes, but as dreadful as it sounds, we all know that wrongs need to be called to account. Sin has to be dealt with in the end. God is absolutely just and fair and righteous and good, and so he must deal with injustice. And that is what he has set aside for this day, the day of the Lord. And maybe the way that universal language of verses 2 and 3 is, is put right beside the specific perspective of Zephaniah's people in verses 4 to 6 is, is meant to reinforce for us that, that no one, not even God's people in Judah, will be exempt from judgment. God has looked down and surveyed even his own people in Judah, even in the, the capital, the holy city of Jerusalem, where the, the temple is, and, and he has found there to be sin that demands judgment there. Let's think again briefly about the message here for, for them then. There were people in Judah, verse 4, who worshipped Baal. Baal, a false god of the Canaanite people. Even among the nation's priests, verse 4 says, there was idolatry. Idolatry, that is, the worship of, of anyone and anything other than the Lord God. Idolatry. By God's priests? Yes, he says here. There were people who worshipped the sun, the moon and the stars, verse 5. That's what host of heavens means. There were people who worshipped God, verse 5, but also worshipped false gods like Milcom, the god of the Ammonite people. But split worship like that actually dishonours God. So too, in verse 6, other people had turned away from following God, and some people had never sought God in the first place. All of those people, all of those responses to the one true God will receive the same judgment. They will all be cut off from God. Wiped from the face of the earth along with everything else, verse 2. It's terrifying, but this day of judgment is actually written across all the Bible and, and God is speaking through Zephaniah into this particular context of Judah, something that is, is fundamentally true about what he wants of everyone. There is one true God. And he wants all our worship to be given exclusively to him. Let me read you something from way back in, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, one of those books of the law of Moses that the people in Zephaniah's time had lost. <laughs> Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 14. 
You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is precisely what God has just revealed as the problem in Zephaniah's day. People are going after other gods instead of worshipping him. And it's much the same problem in the world today. This terrifying day of the Lord must come. This language in Zephaniah captures the cold, hard truth about sin and about God's anger at our sin in verses 2 and 3. It's very hard for us to accept such harsh words as in those verses. Isn't it hard to, to hear that? But we must sit under this and, and understand this. If we're, if we're to fully understand the gospel that we've come to trust in, we must first understand this. Look at it very carefully in verses 2 and 3. It is a whole undoing of creation here in these verses, isn't it? Look at the creation language from Genesis 1 here. Man and beast, birds and fish, everything will be swept away, verse 3. The sequence reverses back through days 6 and, and 5 of, of Genesis 1 and, and undoes it all. The fish and the birds, we, we might ask, <laughs> the beasts of the field, what have they done wrong? Well, tragically, I think it's more the case that our sin has also compromised them because we make idols out of them. Let me read again from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Our idolatry compromises everything else. Our ESV translation doesn't pick it up as well as it could, but in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 3, God will sweep away the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Our eyes and our hearts are corrupted through false worship. And our corruption taints the world that we live in. Whatever goodness or purity we imagine the birds and the fish once had, well, I'm sorry, but we have undermined that purity by making idols out of birds and fish and all the other creatures that we were actually supposed to care for under God. So too, verse 5 goes on to speak more specifically uh, to worshipping celestial bodies. Again, something that God had always warned his people against, such as in that same Deuteronomy passage. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Worship of anything other than the true God, the God of Scripture, who created all these things, 
is idolatry. And that idolatry plagues humanity. But we must get to the third reference point that that help us understand scriptures like Zephaniah here. As we learned in our series about this time last year, I think it was, series This is the Way, do you remember? The unfolding revelation of God's plan for us finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Let me jog your memory just with with one verse as to Jesus' words on this concept in Luke chapter 24. The risen Lord Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. Do you remember we looked at this? In Luke 24 and verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus made it crystal clear that he was the focal point for the whole flow of scripture. And if he was the focal point of the whole biblical revelation, then how should we understand the message of Zephaniah here through that ultimate lens of Jesus? Let's run these verses through the Jesus filter. How does Jesus make sense of this awful warning here in Zephaniah about this day of the Lord that's coming? Two things I think we might flag today and and consider more over our series. First of all, This judgment Zephaniah is describing here is what the Father sent the Son into the world to receive for us. The judgment that we deserve and cannot escape. The very Christian gospel itself is that if we trust in Jesus' death to pay for our sin, then we will stand before God on that day as if we are without sin, purely because of what Christ has done for us. This passage in Zephaniah gives us some serious enlightenment as to the scale of Christ's work on that cross. The entirety of the the judgment that must otherwise come. It gives us an insight here, don't you think, into Jesus' grief in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to that cross. He knew that this kind of justice that Zephaniah is talking about is what he was about to take upon himself. Doesn't it also then give us an insight into the the extent that God so loved the world that he would redirect all of this righteous anger that that we deserve onto himself? To know that our sin is is so incompatible as this with with our holy, holy, holy God that that it warrants the undoing of creation itself, everything to be wiped out and cut off from our holy God, and that he took that on himself. The problem of verses 4 through 6 wasn't just true in Zephaniah's day. If we each knew ourselves honestly, we would know that we all deserve this judgment. God reveals that to us here in these scriptures in, in perfect clarity. But this catastrophic judgment that God speaks of through Zephaniah here in verses 1 to 3, Jesus took that for us. The second thing we need to understand about this day of the Lord concept in Zephaniah as we as we run it through that Jesus filter is, is that Jesus is the Lord of the day. Jesus is the Lord of that day. He spoke about Judgment Day too in places like Matthew 24, for example. And yet he spoke of it in terms of his return on that day. Listen to this sample, Matthew 24, verse 43. Jesus says, 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It is the Son of Man, Jesus, who will come back again to carry out the judgment on the living and the dead. But so too, when he does come back, everyone who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus will be saved on that day. And indeed, we'll get some beautiful and prophetic glimpses of that in Zephaniah over the next few weeks as we do get further into the book. But you're going to have to be patient for that. You're going to have to be comforted by this heads up I can give you at the start. The day of the Lord will be a wonderful day for everyone who has put their trust in Jesus. Because God so loved the world that he poured out all of our judgment on the Son of Man, the Lord of the day. The fourth perspective we eventually have to consider, old texts like Zephaniah from, is, is what it still means to us now. These concepts of idol worship and astral worship in ancient Judah might, might seem a little distant for us, really, in our modern cultural context, don't you think? But maybe we could, in fact, identify our modern equivalents and our personal equivalents more to the point. Worshipping statues is actually prolific in our modern culture if you do stop and look around. It has even pervaded the church. Has it pervaded our lives is the question that we need to ask. Are we so offending God like this too? So too with the sun and the moon and the stars here in verse 5. Our wider culture is, is flawed with this, this absurd idea that the planets and the stars have some kind of influence over our lives. As if there were only 12 different people in the world or something. As if things that God created on day four of that Genesis week could, could somehow have the place of our loving creator who created it all. Every newspaper, every other magazine, and it keeps getting printed because... Humans are so idolatrous that we actually give this kind of stuff the time of day in our life. Are we a little bit guilty of that too? That is the question we need to ask. What about worshipping God plus something, verse 6? Or not really worshipping him wholeheartedly? Are we at all like that? We must ask hard questions of our own lives as we work through Zephaniah. God's word here in Zephaniah screams of his anger at such things, so we should be very thorough in searching our hearts. If statues or relics or trinkets or horoscopes or things or even people have found a place of worship in your life, even the tiniest foothold, then heed this warning in Zephaniah. Don't try to cling to some clever nuance or, or technicality to try to defend it in your life. God only ever speaks in one singular tone about these kinds of things in Scripture. The reality is, humans make idols out of things. We just do it. We prioritise and devote our energies to other things above God. It's just part of our old sinful nature. 
And humans must all be guilty of this in some capacity, or God wouldn't be using such extreme, such universal language here. We are all inherently sinful, and there is no way of escaping this simple truth that our sin, our idolatry, and our rebellion and dishonouring of God makes him angry. Righteously angry. And our dishonouring of God demands judgment. God's warnings about this day really challenge our default tendency to think in terms of, you know, like a balanced ledger or, or having the scales tip in our favour sort of thing when, when we do face judgment. That instinctive line that we all have that, that we're basically good people. No, the language here from God is more that every sin demands judgment. And if we do find a moment of honest reflection, every one deserves judgment, and us included. So our response to this terrifying book of Zephaniah and this, this terrifying day of the Lord that it proclaims is, is that we acknowledge our sinfulness and repent and trust the Lord Jesus to save us. This is what Christians actually mean when they talk about having been saved they're not just talking about you know being being saved from their old lifestyle or or something like that, or saved from bad things to come in this life or anything like that. They mean saved from this that we're reading here in Zephaniah, this cosmic judgment that God is warning us about. Everyone is sinful, and everyone demands this kind of judgment. But in Jesus, God has made a way for us to be saved from this awful end. If you haven't yet turned to God and been saved, then please turn to God and be saved. Don't wait until we get to the end of Zephaniah. Hear that fast-tracked gospel answer to this today, that in Jesus God has taken upon himself the penalty of our sin. There is no other window of hope through this coming judgment. But if you will acknowledge your sin and repent and trust Jesus in that, then you will receive forgiveness. And so instead of being swept away in this kind of judgment, you will be swept up into eternal life. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died. And this is his free gift that he wants for you. Salvation to all who will simply receive it. But like any gift, you, you must receive it. Put your trust in Jesus, the Lord, and, and start looking forward with joy to this day. Because if you have put your trust in Jesus, then your response to this whole book of Zephaniah is not to fear this day of the Lord, but to wait expectantly for it, to wait expectantly for your Lord as faithful and wise servants awaiting their master's return. And perhaps your response to the specific verses today in this little introduction to Zephaniah is, is that you would be vigilant, vigilant in your search of your life, your tendency to wander from God in the meantime. Stay awake, Jesus warned us in that verse from Matthew 24. Stay awake. 
Don't drift away from God again and and drift into idolatry in your life, like the unbelieving world who put their hopes in things other than God. Search your life and keep searching to identify and dig those things out. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What do you think he'll say to those who have turned aside from worshipping him and and worshipping only him? Listen to Zephaniah. Heed the warnings from God about this. What will the Lord say on that day to those who are found to be worshipping or serving other gods? Verse 4. Or worshipping the stars or heavens? Verse 5. Worshipping God and something else? Those who have turned away from God? Those who never even sought God in the first place? Verse 6. And all the more for us now, we should heed these things because we know of God's great sacrifice given to us on the cross. Our response, therefore, should be all the more to live out our lives contrary to these verses in Zephaniah, to seek after God wholeheartedly and exclusively as he demands and as he deserves. Can I call you through this passage in Zephaniah this morning to do that? Will you meet God in prayer and and ask him to examine you and, and to expose in you the next hint of idolatry or false worship that might have crept into your heart and, and, and you may not even be able to see yet? Will you ask him in prayer to help you find those things so that you can worship him? And will you worship him and him alone? And in the meantime, let me pray for us all in that, because we all need prayer for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures and for this book of Zephaniah that we've just found our way to and opened up. And we pray that you help us in this journey, Father. From the get-go, this is terrifying, terrifying stuff. This is an awful reality that you've just painted and put in front of us to hear But help us to listen to it, to what you have said to us about our sin and about your anger at our sin. Help us to process that and understand it. Help us to be patient as we wait for the message to lead us to that gospel answer. But thank you in the meantime that we do already know the gospel, that that in Jesus you've saved us from judgment. You've saved us from this kind of catastrophic, awful end. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for our sin. Help us to be patient as we wait to see that in Zephaniah. The introduction here is is dreadful and overwhelming, but let it not terrify our souls. Help it to drive us deeper and closer to you. Father, the universal language that you've used here in this warning means that we all need to be very diligent and we need to search our lives carefully. But so often we don't see these things until they've already done damage. We pray, therefore, that that you would send us uh, truth and clarity and wisdom as we do search our lives. We need your Spirit to reveal things to us that we need to shed so that we can be more faithful and exclusive in our worship of you. We pray you do that. In Jesus' mighty name, we thank you for all you've done for us and continue to do and ask that you keep us safe in your gospel. Amen.